When Gurley Chu fell in love with a wealthy doctor in the early 1990s, her future seemed brighter than ever. But after years of lies, greed, and violence, Gurley left her husband. Then one night, she disappeared. And the story that would come out, one of reptilian overlords, would be more sensational than anyone could imagine. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. All right, we are back. You may have noticed last week that I did not release on Monday, but only released the third Thursday episode. Unfortunately, that is our new schedule going forward. I had to find places to cut back. My kids are virtual schooling, and I have to help them with that. So what I did was I cut back one episode a month, so I am back to just four episodes, like most podcasts, and then three live streams versus four live streams. I absolutely have no intention of stopping the show. We are just all going to have to adjust here and there to keep it sustainable. Enough with the announcement section. I want to thank Marcy for recommending this week's case. This is not one I had ever heard before, and I appreciate when The audience sends me suggestions for cases like this because it helps me know what you are interested in hearing, and it exposes me to cases that I wouldn't otherwise be aware of, so please keep those recommendations coming. I will say my list is well over 100 cases long right now, but there's always room for more. So let's get into it. Girlie Chu met her husband, Diazen Hassenkoft, in the early 1990s at SeaWorld in San Diego. She was 28 and he was 26. Gurley was visiting from her native Malaysia and Dyson told her he was a doctor from Switzerland who now lived in New Mexico. The two began a long distance relationship like a romantic pen pal situation And that lasted until 1992, when Gurley immigrated to the United States to be with Diazen. They married in 1993 and settled in Albuquerque. Diazen's medical practice was a huge success. He had wealthy clients who paid him large amounts of money for his exclusive anti-aging treatments. And at least one elderly patient even paid for him to travel with her as a personal healthcare companion. Gurley, in the meantime, worked as a bank teller at the Bank of America branch near their home. The early years of their marriage did seem pretty good, pretty stable, though they were both disappointed when they couldn't get pregnant. They very much wanted to have children. Then in September 1996, Diazen went on a business trip. When he returned, he had with him a one-month-old infant. He said he had adopted while he was on this business trip to Mexico. The couple were now suddenly parents without Gurley having any say in it, and that seemed to be totally fine with Diazen. He then turned his focus back on a biomedical business he was trying to get off the ground called Hasenkoft Industries. It does not appear like Dyson got much further than registering the business in 1995 and printing off some business cards. When anyone would ask him how things were going with this new corporation, he would put it off, saying that he was just on the verge of whatever the next step was. But before this business ever made it to that next step, before it ever found success, the bottom fell out of the couple's lifestyle when Diazen's top patient, and by that I mean top spender, died. He still made money with other patients who spent hundreds and even thousands of dollars for 
his anti-aging regimen and his holistic cancer cures, but not nearly to that same level. Even worse, Diazin was diagnosed with leukemia, and it appeared to be terminal. Gurley's paycheck as a bank teller and then donations from concerned friends were their main sources of income. With the financial strain came marital strain, mostly in the form of Dyson becoming increasingly abusive towards Gurley, and it eventually turned physical. Gurley consulted with a divorce attorney in 1998, but she was not quite ready to leave just yet. There were two instances where police were called for domestic situations, and Gurley left after the second one in early 1999. Gurley ended up learning a lot about Diazin after she left when she and or her attorney came across several documents. Gurley found out that her husband had lied about pretty much everything from the very beginning of their relationship, as in when he introduced himself. For one, Dyson was not from Switzerland. He was from Houston, Texas. His real name was Armand Chavez, and he didn't legally change it to Dyson Hasenkoft until shortly before Gurley moved to the U.S., so when he presented himself as Diazin, that wasn't even his name yet. He also was not a doctor. He was not a geneticist. He wasn't any of the various professions he claimed. Diazin graduated with his undergrad in chemistry, and he very briefly attended medical school at the University of Utah. They found out he had forged some documents to get in and he was immediately booted from the program. It doesn't sound like he even was there for a full semester. Dyson pretty much never, over the course of their marriage, held a legitimate job. The closest he got was practicing medicine without a license, which is the opposite of legitimate. Those anti-aging and cancer shots he was giving out, they were just B vitamin shots. And to keep the surprises coming, Dyson was not dying of anything. He didn't have leukemia. It was a lie. All of it. So Gurley moves out and she gets an apartment and begins divorce proceedings. She was still afraid of Dyson, so she would not tell him where she lived. She got a P.O. box, so she wasn't getting any mail in her name to the apartment. She would alter the route she took home from work every night. She kept an eye out for any cars that might be following her. She signed up for classes at a local karate academy. And she set up a system with friends where someone called to check on her every day. Shortly after Gurley filed for divorce and got her P.O. box, she received a letter from the INS, which is the Immigration and Naturalization Service, saying that she was at risk of prosecution and her passport had been suspended. She called INS and learned that there was no agent with the name on the letter and there was no case against her. Gurley assumed this was Diazin attempting to harass her. And she assumed it was him harassing her when she found her parked car with the window cracked. Any odd phone calls, she assumed, again, just more harassment. The couple did share this toddler that Diazin had adopted. So Gurley was not going to cut off all contact. Initially, Gurley was paying child support for their son and maintaining regular visits. But Diazin ended up using the little boy as just yet another way to manipulate her. And he eventually told her that if she would sign away any rights she had to him, Diazin would then leave her alone. 
So Gurley agreed. She said she would drop seeking visitation in the hopes Diazin would actually leave her alone. But she did continue to send child support. There is some indication here that Gurley may not have understood what rights she had, if any, over this little boy anyway. As I mentioned, the adoption was basically Dyson showing up with a baby. And even though Dyson was not quite done harassing his estranged wife, he did move on with new relationships pretty much right away. But he also hadn't let his marriage get in the way of relationships, though Gurley did not know the extent of his unfaithfulness. But now that the divorce was pending, Dyson connected with several women, many over the internet, with a few of them thinking they were going to marry him. Always the con man, 34-year-old Dyson would attempt to get money, attention, and sex from these various girlfriends and fiancés. One woman he met in June 1999 was 45-year-old Linda Henning. She lived in Albuquerque, where she worked as a marketing specialist. But she had previously worked a high-paced job in the fashion industry. She was a savvy businesswoman who also dabbled in the conspiracy theory world. Ever since her late teens, Linda felt drawn to conspiracies, primarily about government cover-ups. Chemtrails, the moon landing, Area 51, the usual suspects. There are two stories on how she met Dyson Hasenkoft. Linda said they met after someone at her gym said that she would probably get along with Dyson since they had similar views on these conspiracy theories. Other documents indicate that they met at a metaphysics convention hosted by conspiracy theory author David Icke. Either way, the two hit it off, and the first time they talked, they spoke for hours. The romantic and intimate part of their relationship began within a week of meeting. Dyson gave his song and dance about being a doctor, he graduated from the University of Tokyo, and he was dying of leukemia. He and his young son were struggling since his wife, Gurley, had abandoned them. He needed a caretaker, a role that Linda Henning was happy to fill. And the more she cared for him with the unconventional treatments he used, the better he seemed to get. And this confirmed to Linda that Diazin was the real deal. Of course, he was not. He only appeared to get better because he was faking it. So he could turn it on and off depending on what treatment he was using. But now Linda had this close connection to him. He and his son needed her. And according to Linda's friends, she was a nurturing person who liked to care for people. Over the next several weeks, Linda's friends noticed a marked change in her. She suddenly seemed less curious about government conspiracies and more absolutely sure of them. When they would talk to her, she would talk about a variety of topics like reptilian politicians who secretly controlled the world. According to what other people have said, Dyson had even convinced her that he had supernatural powers, such as telekinetic communication with a mysterious extraterrestrial council. This council held mystical power over mortals and could alter our fates. Linda appeared to accept and believe everything Dyson told her. Linda eventually introduced Dyson to a friend of hers named Bill Miller. He was a survivalist who had a similar belief in the paranormal and extraterrestrial. 
And if the story ended here with three friends who have curiosities about otherworldly things, then that would be totally fine. In fact, if they waited a few more years, this would have been a great premise to a podcast. But that's not what happened, so let's keep going. In July or August 1999, Diazen told Linda that he was moving to live with someone he met on the internet, someone who lived across the country in South Carolina. Linda wasn't a huge fan of this plan. She had grown so close to Diazen, she was attached to him, and she had even fallen in love with him in a fairly short amount of time, and now he intended to leave. While some people would end the relationship here, seeing that the person they loved didn't love them back quite the same way, Linda did not. She and Diazen remained together for the summer. But there was one thing Diazen said he had to do in New Mexico before he left for South Carolina. Diazen wanted to place his three-year-old son, who we will call Daniel, up for adoption. Due to his terminal diagnosis, you know, the one he made up, he wanted to make sure the little boy would be cared for after his death. His fake death, I assume. So on August 18th, 1999, Dyson called an adoption agency to ask about an open adoption. He said he only had four or five months left to live, so he wanted to move quickly with the adoption but he also wanted it to be an open adoption so he could get updates and be able to talk to Daniel on the phone until his eventual death. He also told the adoption agent, Vonda Cheshire, that Daniel was conceived in a test tube and then grown in a plastic womb while Dyson was working as a geneticist. That meant there was no quote-unquote real mother to sign away rights. Vonda met with Diazen twice before she decided that no one from the agency was to meet with this man alone. He did not seem entirely stable. For one, the test tube plastic womb story was impossible. It didn't happen. For another, Dyson showed up to these meetings with an IV attached. But over the three-hour-long intake meetings, the liquid in the bag never went down. And he carried a bloody handkerchief, claiming that he was coughing up blood, but never once did he cough up blood in front of Vonda. She frankly did not believe him, and she wasn't sure what was going on. The agency did run a paternity test, which established Diazen actually was the biological father of Daniel, and therefore he had the legal right to place him for adoption. The agency asked for medical records for Daniel's file, which also confirmed Diazen did not have leukemia. The information about the leukemia did not come as a surprise to Gurley, of course. She had already learned he was lying about it. But she was contacted to relinquish her rights and couldn't believe Daniel was actually Diazen's biological child. Because remember, Gurley was told the child was adopted from Mexico. Gurley still signed the paperwork that the adoption agency sent her in late August, likely relieved that Daniel would be going to a stable home environment. But when Diazen heard she signed over her parental rights, he flipped out. He told the adoption worker that there would be justice. When he was asked what he meant by justice, He backpedaled and said he just meant karma. So to recap, Dyson lied to his wife about fathering a child. He instead pretended he adopted the baby. Then he decided 
he wanted to place the child for adoption himself, three years later, he signed all of the necessary paperwork for this to happen. But when he found out Gurley also signed the paperwork, he then blamed her for taking his son away from him. Obviously, this only makes sense in the mind of Dyson Hosenkoft. So moving on, we are now in early September 1999, and Daniel had just moved in with his adoptive family. Dyson was still planning to move to South Carolina with one of his fiancés while he was also dating Linda Henning in person. Gurley and her friends had come up with a number of ways to keep her safe, including check-in calls throughout the day. But something was still nagging at Gurley. Dyson had gone on that business trip for a few days and shown up with a baby who was biologically related to him. That leads to the obvious question, where was the baby's mother? Gurley knew Dyson had defrauded people with those anti-aging treatments. She knew he lied about having leukemia, but this was a lot more serious. It seemed possible that Dyson had actually kidnapped his son and was hiding the child from the birth mother. But an even scarier question was, did something bad happen to Daniel's mother? And Gurley was not the only one with this question. The FBI was actually investigating this. The court documents I have are vague. They just refer to it as an ongoing investigation. But I imagine the adoption agency had gotten the ball rolling. They needed to do their due diligence finding Daniel's mother for the adoption. On September 8th, Gurley called the Albuquerque field office of the FBI to ask about the investigation and to just find out what's going on. She told the agent that she feared for her life and she wanted to know if Diazen was going to be arrested, if there was anything they could do to help protect her. She made plans to go speak with the FBI in person on September 13th with additional information she had about Diazen and his various cons. The next day, which was Thursday, September 9th, Gurley went to work and she left at 5.15 as normal. She did some errands, she mailed a letter to her parents, and arrived back at her own apartment a little before 6. The next morning, around 8 a.m., a friend of hers called the bank where she worked. This friend asked if Gurley was there. She hadn't been home when she made the usual check-in phone call the night before, and then Gurley didn't answer when the friend tried to call again before work. Gurley's co-worker said she wasn't in, and they were actually getting worried themselves. Gurley was always punctual, and she told them if she was ever late to work or she just didn't show up to call the police. They needed to expect the worst. So her boss tried to call her apartment and got no answer, so they did exactly what Gurley told them to do. They contacted the police and asked for a welfare check. One coworker decided to drive out to the apartment and meet the police there, but he ended up arriving before they did. When he saw that Gurley's car was still in the parking lot, he talked the office manager into opening Gurley's door. He figured if her car was there, she might be too, and she would have been in need of immediate help. But when they opened the door, no one was there. There was a strong smell of bleach, but Gurley was not in the apartment, so they left and waited outside for the police. When authorities arrived, the coworker mentioned how only the doorknob was locked, not the deadbolt. Because of Gurley's fear of her ex-husband, the deadbolt was always locked, whether she was in the home or not. The two responding officers walked through the apartment 
and also noted the smell of bleach, as well as three damp bleach stains on the carpet. But there were also rust-colored smears and small droplets of what looked like blood on the floor near the couch. Some of this blood-appearing substance was also on the lower part of the couch. Realizing that this looked like a sloppily cleaned-up crime scene, they called in the homicide detectives right away. And it didn't take much time to establish a suspect. Everyone immediately told the police to find Diazin. Whatever happened, he had to have been involved. But they couldn't find him. They went out to his house, and the neighbor said he moved out a couple of days before. But they assumed he was still in the area since they saw him go back to the house just the night before. These two neighbors saw him speed into the neighborhood and park in front of his house. He got out of the car dressed in all black, with his face and his hands also painted black. This obviously stood out to them. They watched him as he stayed for a short time before leaving again. At some point, Linda Henning's name came up as a connection to Dyson. She also drove a car that matched the description of the one the neighbors last saw Dyson driving. Around 10 that night, the detectives went over to Linda's house to see if Dyson was there, and Linda agreed to let them search her house to look for him. They didn't find him there. Linda explained that he had been planning this out-of-state move for a while. He had stayed with her on the 8th and the 9th, but he left that morning. When she was asked where he went, she told them Dallas. With both Dyson and Gurley missing, the Albuquerque PD put out a nationwide attempt to locate on both of them and noted that Gurley may be injured because of the blood found in her apartment. The same day it was discovered that Gurley was missing, about an hour and a half to two hours south of Albuquerque, a state highway employee was doing road cleanup when he picked up a tarp that was in the middle of the street. He tossed it in his truck. A little past this, he found a woman's blouse, underwear, and shorts. He put those in a plastic bag because he noticed they had what looked like blood on them. The items also had some animal fur and feathers on them, which made him initially wonder if this was some hunter who lost things out of the back of his truck. But the bloodied women's clothing seemed suspicious enough that he turned it all over to the police rather than disposing of it. The state police took custody of the evidence, and then they went back out into the area where the stuff was found. They did a wider search and found two pieces of duct tape, one with hair stuck to it, and a piece of gauze with blood on it. The evidence would link back to Gurley, but we will get to that later. At this point in our timeline, they were still processing the evidence found on the highway and the evidence from the carpet and the sofa in Gurley's apartment. And then someone called in another piece of found evidence. Gurley's wallet with her ID was found on the street about half a mile from Linda Henning's house. So the police went back out to Linda's home and conducted a more thorough search. In the ceiling of the garage, they found a large ninja sword. It would later be determined that Diazin bought the sword the day before Gurley was reported missing. While the sword wasn't caked with blood or anything, they did take it into evidence. It seemed suspiciously hidden. Linda claimed she only hid it because she was afraid the police would take it, that it was an innocent gift from Dyson and she didn't want to lose it. 
forensic tests would determine there was blood and DNA on the sword. Diazin's DNA was on the handle, but the blood on the blade was either not enough to test or it was too degraded. On the search of Linda's house, guns and ammunition were found that were also linked to Diazin. And in Linda's car, a button was found. And it matched the shorts of girlies that were found in the road and were missing a button. Linda agreed to go to the station to give a full statement. She appeared to be cooperating fully. She told them that Dyson told her he was moving, but she didn't know where he was. She didn't know anything about his estranged wife. And Gurley really hadn't come up much in their conversations, except that Dyson said that he and Gurley had lived separate lives for most of their marriage. When asked about her relationship with Dyson, Linda stopped cooperating in the sense that she lied. She omitted the sexual aspect of their relationship and said she was his caretaker as he was very sick with leukemia. After questioning Linda, they let her go home. There was nothing to hold her on, but they were still going to stay on this trail. There was enough here that it seemed like they were on the right track. They began interviewing friends who said that Linda and Diazin were in a romantic relationship and that they shared some pretty extreme beliefs, including one that they turned into cat-like people when they had sex. And it wasn't in a figurative sense. One of Linda's friends said she indicated where in her mouth her fangs would appear. The friends filled police in on some of the other beliefs, and they felt that Linda's curiosity and propensity toward conspiracy theories, the paranormal, the extraterrestrial, made her primed to accept whatever Diazin, a seasoned con man, told her. So all of this was odd for the police to hear and write down and probably type up their reports but it wasn't getting them the locations of either Gurley or Dyson. But they did know Dyson was alive wherever he was because he was making phone calls. On September 13th, he called one of the neighbors who had spoken to police about seeing him, and he said he was angry with her and accused her of involving the FBI in the case. He said he knew who she talked to and what was in her file. He said he'd be watching her and she better be careful. Then he called another neighbor and said she's in trouble. So this tells us that Diazin was also in contact with someone still in Albuquerque because how else would he know that his neighbors were speaking with the police? And the person he was in contact with was obviously Linda Henning. On September 17th, a week after Diazin and Gurley were last seen, Dyson called his divorce attorney. He told her that his son had been taken by the government to be experimented on and dissected. He said to have the FBI leave information online to let him know his son was okay or he would release a virus on the population that would kill nearly everyone. He also called the adoption agency, who refused to give him any information. Then he made threats against them. The police were working hard to track Dyson down, and they managed to find him through a moving company. And he was living in South Carolina, so they were able to arrest him on federal charges of making threats across state lines. And that included the threats to the neighbor, his lawyer, and the adoption worker. The DA convened a grand jury to look into Gurley's disappearance while Dyson was being extradited back to New Mexico. Linda testified, and she alibied Dyson. She said they were together the entire night Gurley went missing and that he stayed at her house from the 8th until the 10th. That's when his South Carolina fiancé showed up in Albuquerque to drive across the country with him. 
Linda also said she didn't know Gurley, never met her, knew nothing about her, and absolutely had no idea what happened to her. But at least a few of those things were a lie. On August 20th, a few weeks before Gurley went missing, Linda went to the bank to handle a transaction. She went to the same bank Gurley worked at, and she went to Gurley's teller window. The bank records showed that Gurley handled the transaction, and her name tag and nameplate were displayed. With a name like Gurley Chu Hosenkoft, Linda couldn't have thought maybe this was some other Gurley Chu Hosenkoft. She had to have known this was Diazen's ex. Yet she told the police and she told the grand jury that she had never met Gurley before. Linda went to that same bank branch two more times on August 26th and September 3rd. There were additional suspicious actions taken by Linda in the days before Gurley went missing. During the first week of September, which was around the last time Linda went to the bank where Gurley was working, Linda told a coworker that she and Dyson were getting married soon. Someone made a comment about him still being married to someone else and Linda said that would be taken care of next week. This could be interpreted multiple ways. The divorce proceedings were nearing their end. Dyson may have even told her that the case would be finalized the next week, and that's what Linda meant. But since Gurley disappeared During this time frame where Linda said things would be taken care of, it does sound suspicious in hindsight. Then late in the afternoon on September 9th, a few hours before Gurley was believed to have gone missing, a friend saw Linda Dyson and their friend Bill Miller at a local bookstore. Linda and Dyson had walkie-talkies that Linda had rented starting on September 1st. She paid in advance for a two-week rental. The friend they bumped into at the bookstore said Linda was acting hyper and erratic. She was speaking rapidly and with an odd pitch to her voice. The bookstore sighting brought this third person into the investigation. Bill Miller. He and Linda had been friends for a while, and records showed that in August, the two traveled to a remote ranch about a 30-minute drive from where the tarp and bloody clothes would later be found. This area was pretty key to the searches for Gurley. The investigation had led to the conclusion that Gurley was attacked and kidnapped from her home and taken to a second location where she was killed. There could possibly be a third site, a dump site, where her body was left. Since there was evidence found in this area near that ranch and in that road, it was likely important to the crime. But no other signs of Gurley were found there or anywhere else. This case was going to proceed as a no-body case. The investigation also showed that the day before Gurley went missing, Linda and Dyson went to an RV dealership. While looking at a specific RV, Diazen said that one compartment looked, quote, large enough to hide a body. They did leave without buying anything, though they made an appointment to come back on September 10th, even though Diazen's move to South Carolina was already planned for this day. So this encounter was just one of those odd little things that came up. Another thing that came up was that Linda went to a Home Depot where she purchased a tarp or a drop cloth of some type. It was the same style and size as the one found in the road with blood on it. 
And can I just say Home Depot seems to come up a lot in these murder cases, and I'll clarify that I am not in any way sponsored by them, nor would they probably choose to. So here's another interesting thing about purchases Linda was making in this time frame. This one is fuel for her car. She filled her car tank on September 7th. She claimed she was home with Diazin pretty much from the 8th to the 10th, except for a few errands. So why in the world would she need to refill her tank again on the 9th? She was home, but used a full tank of gas. We do know Dyson was seen driving her car. So where did he go to use up that much gas? And why didn't Linda admit that she had loaned Dyson her car? So there wasn't really one thing initially that made investigators believe Linda Henning was involved in some way. It was all these little things. And as they were investigating, the grand jury was continuing to review the information as it came in. On October 20th, 1999, Brian Miller testified that Diazin told him that he wanted a high-power rifle so he could shoot Gurley from a distance. Dyson also said something about wanting to get rid of Gurley and having Brian and Linda help. Brian went on to say Dyson wanted him and Linda to grab Gurley and bring her to him. But Brian denied involvement or in helping Dyson with this request. Before the grand jury could come to their decision and indict anyone on anything, Linda was arrested at a hotel where she was staying in late October. She was initially charged with lying to the grand jury in her testimony that alibied Dyson, and she was also charged for contacting a grand jury witness. She had called Brian Miller after she testified. It wasn't until a few weeks after this arrest on November 18th that the grand jury indicted Linda and Diazen on charges related to the disappearance and presumed murder of Gurley Hosenkoft. They were charged with first-degree felony murder and kidnapping, as well as charges related to tampering with evidence. And the state said they were seeking the death penalty in both cases. Brian Miller, however, was not indicted by the grand jury on these charges, even though the investigators believed all three were involved. They were even more convinced of this when some of the forensic evidence came in. So let's get into that now. Like with the Corin Erstad case, there were a bunch of pieces so it's just easiest to walk through them more like bullet points. And I want to start with the evidence that made the investigators link Brian Miller to the crime, since it really feels like that came out of left field. Yes, he was with Linda and Diazin at the bookstore on September 9th, but that was hours before it was believed Gurley was kidnapped and killed. This evidence has to do with animals. On the carpet in Gurley's apartment and on the tarp and the blouse left in the road, rabbit, deer, cat hairs, and feathers were found. Some of these feathers were dyed, like the type you would use for fly fishing. Similar animal hairs and feathers were found in Brian Miller's home. The cat hairs were consistent with both Linda and Brian's cats. The authorities believed that the hairs transferred from Brian or his home to the crime scene. There was also a human hair on the tarp that was initially linked through hair analysis to Brian Miller. Hair analysis, much like Home Depot, seems to come up a lot. You can listen to my episode on Sharon Baldeagle if you want to hear more about the accuracy of hair analysis. But in this case, 
we actually know this was not Brian's hair. They were able to do mitochondrial DNA testing, and he was excluded as being a source of the hair, and Linda Henning was included as a possible source. Mitochondrial DNA comes from our mothers, but it's not a complete DNA profile. It can only exclude or include people from being possible sources. Brian Miller's journey through the legal-slash-grand jury process here was a mess. He would get indicted, then it would be dismissed. Then he'd be indicted again. As much as investigators and prosecutors believed he was involved, there really was not a lot here. In the end, Brian ended up pleading out on charges of tampering with evidence for attempting to eat business cards. Eating business cards is not something that has come up on the show before. When Brian was arrested in February 2001 in relation to this case, he was seen on CCTV footage pulling business cards out of his sock, tearing them up, and then trying to eat the pieces. The state believed the names on the cards may have been associates he didn't want the police to talk to. That's what made it evidence, and then trying to eat it is apparently tampering with it. So far, we've had faked cancer, aliens, reptilian overlords, shape-shifting cat sacks, and now we have a guy eating business cards that he had hidden in his sock. Cases with sensational elements like this do get a lot of play in the media, which is part of why I'm surprised I had not heard of this case before. But let's get back to the forensics, which I'm going to admit is much more familiar ground for me. Let's start with that tarp. In addition, with the hair consistent with Linda's, there were particles of glitter and art sand that matched glitter and art sand found in Linda's garage. But matching a consistent hair, particles of glitter, and art sand is not nearly as strong of a link as what they found in Gurley's apartment. Remember, Linda first claimed she never met Gurley. When that was proven false, she brushed it off as a 20-second interaction at the bank, no big deal. She still claimed she didn't know Gurley very well, she didn't know where she lived, and she had never been to her home. Of the blood that could be recovered from Gurley's house, there were six small blood stains on the carpet and one blood smear on the couch that were all large enough for DNA testing. Four of the carpet stains and the couch smear matched Linda's DNA. The other two spots were girlies. To me, this is the biggest obstacle for Linda's defense to overcome. But someone was waiting in the wings to rescue her and explain it all away, Dyson Hosenkoft. In January 2002, Dyson cut a deal. He would plead guilty in exchange for the death penalty being taken off the table, and he would get to serve out his days in a Wyoming prison rather than a New Mexico one. In exchange, he agreed to give a full confession. A confession from a con man isn't worth much, but the DA agreed to these terms. Dyson told them that he did not know where Gurley's body was, but he had set up her murder. Brian Miller had wanted to hunt a human being, and Dyson wanted Gurley dead, so he orchestrated what he saw as a solution that worked for both of them. But because he wasn't there, he didn't know or want to know the details. He only hoped She suffered. That is what he said. Dyson claimed Linda was not involved at all. The state believed Linda was the one who knocked on the door to get Gurley to open up because she never would have answered to a strange man and certainly not Dyson. But a nice lady she may be recognized from work, she likely would have opened the door. 
But Dyson said this was all wrong. Brian was the one at the door, and he dressed as a maintenance man, which is how he gained Gurley's trust enough to get in the door. Brian was supposed to kidnap Gurley from the apartment without issue, and Dyson would just plant a note making it sound like Gurley went on a vacation somewhere. But they didn't expect Gurley to use those self-defense skills she had learned and fight back. Brian called Dyson to let him know that the apartment was a mess. In this fight, he had left all sorts of evidence behind. Dyson sent Linda to go pick up a prescription for him, while he drove to the apartment to clean it up. And in the event he missed any spots of blood when he was pouring bleach on the carpet, Dyson emptied out a vial of blood all over the floor to confuse the crime scene investigators. And police did find vials of other people's blood in Dyson's refrigerator when they searched his house. So we do know he had access to vials of blood. Diazin said he had taken two vials of women's blood he was going to use, but the other one broke in his pocket. The only one he had left to use was Linda's. It was just a huge coincidence that it was mostly spots of Linda's blood he didn't manage to destroy and clean up. And we have to believe that he just so happened to take the blood of someone who would link right back to him. Now, the state didn't buy this. Diazin's confession, which was saving Linda and implicating Bill, could have just been rewarding one of them for not turning on him and punishing the other for testifying at the grand jury unfavorably. Regardless of Diazin's attempt to de-implicate Linda, her trial began in September 2002, three years after Gurley's disappearance. The state presented the motive as financial. Gurley wanted her share of the equity in the home that she shared with Diazin, the one he was selling. Dyson framed it that he was mad at Gurley for turning over her parental rights to Daniel. But at the end of the day, he was looking to be forced to pay Gurley $53,000 out of the proceeds of the house for her share of the equity. Dyson had built whatever wealth he had on conning people out of their money. He certainly wasn't going to voluntarily pay five figures to his ex-wife. Linda's motive to be involved was her intense love, infatuation, and loyalty to this man who she had, remember, only known for about seven weeks when Gurley went missing. For some reason, though, she was completely captivated by him. The defense was that Linda was completely in the dark. Now, this case is not one Linda has said she agreed to. This was her attorney's idea. They went with the story Dyson told, that he orchestrated the murder with Brian Miller and planted Linda's blood at the scene. They showed records of Linda running errands. She was at the pharmacy at 6.33. There were store purchases at 10.18 and 11.23, as well as an ATM withdrawal. These are all times Linda was accounted for elsewhere and times Dyson could sneak away and help Brian Miller clean up the scene without Linda knowing. But the store she went to at 1018 was just 12 minutes from Gurley's house, and she bought a flashlight and batteries. Now, why did she suddenly need those things at 10 at night on a Thursday? I'm not going to say this exactly implicates her, because maybe she did randomly need a flashlight. But I don't know if it went as far as to alibi her, since it seems like a purchase you would make if you were going out somewhere dark that night. 
like a remote area of New Mexico to dump a body. I'm not saying that's what happened, but that is definitely some framework the state wanted to put around that purchase. Diazin took the stand for the defense and he told his story again. And if he wanted to come across as a complete creep, he succeeded. For some reason, he got up there all shifty and he was speaking in weird accents when he answered questions. And that's accents plural, not one accent. He had just this changing way of talking before he finally gave up and started talking with a fairly neutral American accent. On the stand, Dyson bragged about what a great job he did since Gurley's body has never been found. He was smug, and he lacked any and all remorse. On cross-examination, the state read through Dyson's resume and asked him after each line if it was true. And of course it wasn't. Not his education, not his jobs, not his businesses, nothing. And they succeeded in painting Diazin as the liar he was. Even if he was telling the truth this time, the state did a good job telling the jury why they shouldn't believe him. Diazin tried to counter this by making it sound like he had no motive to lie. He said he didn't care if Linda was sent to the death chamber because that would just make her his next victim. But if he didn't care, why was he testifying in her favor? He just came off as weird and not in a good way and creepy, and I just don't think the jury bought any of it. The defense went with Diazin's explanation that he planted the blood. That discounted the forensics that were found, and then they could point to the lack of other forensics. Other than the small amount of blood, there was no transfer of blood anywhere else, and that included Linda's apartment, her clothes, and her car, in spite of her and Gurley supposedly getting into a fight that left both of them bloodied. Where was the rest of the blood? So when the jury took the case, they sent some questions to the judge as they were deliberating. And one of the questions had to do with the defense's closing statement. Her attorney made a reference to paranoid schizophrenia. The jury wanted to know if that diagnosis applied to Linda and was it in evidence since they thought it had only come up in the closing, they did not remember it from the trial. Their memories were not faulty. It did not come up in the trial. The judge did not give them a direct answer on this, but rather told them to rely on their memories. Now, here's the thing with this from a layperson's perspective. The paranoid schizophrenia was only brought up in the closing, and that makes it feel like a Hail Mary. It comes across like the defense was not confident about their case, and with their client facing the death penalty, they decided to just throw that in there. We don't know if that's how the jury interpreted it, but they did deliberate for a week. So we know the defense gave them a lot to think about. Overcoming the blood evidence at the scene was hard, and they did the best they could with it, in my view. Linda would disagree with me, which we'll get to, but they gave an explanation for it being there, being planted, and they had someone confess to planting it on the stand. But it still wasn't enough for an acquittal. The jury found Linda guilty of murder, conspiracy to kidnap, perjury, criminal solicitation, tampering with evidence, and conspiracy to tamper with evidence. She was found not guilty on some other charges, and the defense said that the guilty and not guilty verdicts contradicted each other. However, the judge allowed them to stand. The jury did not, however, recommend the death penalty in the sentencing phase. 
The judge, who believed Linda had been largely brainwashed by Diazen, offered her leniency in sentencing if she would provide information that would help locate Gurley's remains. If she provided those answers, she had a chance of getting the minimum sentence and then not dying in prison. Linda decided not to cooperate, according to her, because she wasn't involved and had nothing to offer. Now, prior to Linda's formal sentencing hearing, the state submitted a memorandum that included yet another sensational element. It said that two inmates and two nurse practitioners came forward to say that Linda told them she ate some of Gurley's flesh. The prosecutor believed that there may have been some ritualistic cannibalism, but not the consumption of her entire body. While he had this testimony prior to the trial, he opted to avoid bringing it in because it didn't directly pertain to the murder, and he didn't want to add to the already bizarre nature of the case. Linda adamantly denied that there was any sort of cannibalism involved, And her attorney said the DA dreamed this up and was so obsessed with the case that he should seek professional help. But the state said they included this because it was a small part of their larger argument in favor of sending Linda to prison for the rest of her life, as they believed she was a poor candidate for rehabilitation. Linda was eventually sentenced to life plus 43 and a half years. One source said she would be eligible for parole in 2030 when she will be 76 years old. If New Mexico allows added time off, it could be earlier. And if she has been penalized for infractions, it could be later. I couldn't find a lot of clear-cut information on New Mexico parole law. Linda has appealed, but they have all been denied. Linda not only maintains her innocence, but says Diazen, who confessed is also innocent. Prior to taking the stand to defend her, Linda says that Diazen asked her to forgive him for whatever he set up there. He didn't mean it. Her attorney just wanted him to put on a performance to hopefully get her free. Linda did not want to go this path with her defense. She said that she could not testify after Diazen did because what he said was a lie. So she feels like her defense team tied her hands there. She holds them accountable for what she sees as a shoddy job defending her. Linda said in an interview on the TV show Snapped that she hopes Gurley is found, because it would show that this is a hoax. The entire thing was a conspiracy by the government to silence her and Diazen. To Linda, this is another government conspiracy. Diazen has very recently filed to vacate his sentence, claiming he was pressured to plead guilty 18 years ago. And he also claims he can prove he and Linda are innocent. That motion is still pending. And you might be wondering about a thread in the story that I have dropped, and we're going to pick it back up right now. What about Diazen's son, the little boy we're calling Daniel, who must have a mother out there? The story on that has come out. In 1995, Diazen traveled with one of his wealthy clients to Alberta, Canada. There, he met a Japanese woman who was working in a hotel. They began writing to each other, and over the next several months, she traveled to see him in New Mexico, and he visited her three times in Canada. Diazen was married to Gurley at this time. In November 1995, the woman became pregnant, but she didn't find out until she had returned home. 
The baby, Daniel, was born in Japan. Diazen told the mother that the child would inherit a terrible disease from his side of the family. The baby would need lifelong, expensive care that Diazen, a successful doctor, could provide. So the mother and Daniel flew from Japan to Mexico, where they met up with Diazen. With a completely broken heart, she handed the baby over, thinking this would be what was best for him. And of course, this was a lie. There was no disease. She said Dyson did not kidnap Daniel. She handed him over willingly. But I think we can see that this was straight-up manipulation at Dyson's hands. Dyson wanted custody of the baby, and so he found a way to get it. As soon as Dyson had the baby, he cut off all contact. She had no idea what happened to her son. She was tracked down by the FBI in their investigation, but due to her current circumstances, she wasn't sure she could take custody of Daniel back, or if it would even be what was best for Daniel, who had already been separated from Gurley, the only mother he knew, and Diazen, his father. So he was working towards healing from that trauma of that separation already with his adoptive family. Was another move in his best interest. Whatever resolution happened on the custody side of things with Daniel and his birth mother and his adoptive family, it's a private family matter. The only thing we can really hope is that Daniel, who's a grown man now, wherever he is in the world, we have to hope he has found the stability and the peace that was robbed from him in his early years. (laughs) 